This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Fairlay. Fairlay is a Bitcoin prediction market where you can place predictions on the likelihood of sporting events, the Bitcoin price, or current affairs. You earn money if your predictions are correct. Head over to fairlay.com slash epicenter, that's F-A-I-R-L-A-Y dot com slash epicenter, to place your first bet today. And by the Gem Social Messaging app. We believe GEMS has a real potential to bring new users into the Bitcoin ecosystem and take adoption to the next level. It's social messaging on cryptocurrency steroids. The GEMS presale is running now, and you too can benefit from becoming an early supporter. Head over to getgems.org to learn more. And by Shapeshift.io. With no account or sign-up required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to shapeshift.io to instantly convert all coins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. Uh, and my name is Brian Fabian Crane. So we're here today with a man that pretty much everyone I will know in the Bitcoin space, who is Vitalik Buterin. Of course, you know Vitalik as the founder of Ethereum mainly. He also used to be a writer at Bitcoin Magazine uh, a while ago. And for those, I'm sure most of you will know Ethereum as well, but if you don't, we've done two episodes before on that, one with uh, Stefan Tual uh, a very long time ago, and one with, with Gavin Wood just when the Ether sale started. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time today, Vitalik. Yeah, thank you. So... Perhaps to get started, we're not going to spend too much time sort of talking about what is Ethereum, but uh, can you briefly run us through, maybe very briefly, what Ethereum is, and then also how it has kind of evolved uh, from from the time when most people heard about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so originally when I came up with the idea of behind Ethereum last year in November, I had actually been working on some of the other Crypto 2.0 projects, or at least they were calling themselves Crypto 2.0, 2.0 back then. But this, uh, you know, there, there are these sort of meta layers on top of Bitcoin. There are these different colored coins projects. And um, and I saw that there were a whole bunch of projects that were trying to like starting to like stack up different features. They were trying to use the blockchain for other things. So there were projects that were trying to like do financial contracts on the blockchain. There were people trying to do enable registrations on the blockchain, and like they were trying to you know make the platform more and more power, more and more powerful. And uh, I and the thing that I noticed at the time is that you know this idea of con- just continuing to add and add more and more protocol features ultimately it really doesn't. It's fundamentally limited, right? It's uh, you know. It's, Okay, you come up with 60 different features. Here's 60 different things people can do with the blockchain. That's it. What if someone wants to do thing number 61? They need to upgrade the protocol again. And so the realization that I made is that the best way to move these kinds of platforms forward and make them more useful is by adding in a programming language. So instead of having a lot of features, you have no features. Instead, you just have a programming language. And that programming language has the ability to control money and to control a database. And then people can do whatever features they want on top. So initially, Ethereum was meant to be actually a meta layer on top of PrimeCoin. Then in January, it sort of migrated to being its own independent blockchain. Then 
So you know, it's a blockchain that would have that has this sort this sort of uh, mechanism built inside of it, where you account you have a special type of account called a contract, and contracts are actually controlled by code that lives inside of the system. Um. <clears throat> then, over the next few months, uh, uh, Gav Gav came up with uh, this idea of well, I guess. Gav and Jeff together sort of came up with the idea of, you know, having this Ether browser, which is a client for Ethereum. It's kind of like an interface inside of which you can view decentralized applications, basically in exactly the same way that you would view websites inside of a web browser. Then we had this idea of having, you know, two other protocols that would work in, that would work inside of this Ether browser which would be called Whisper and Swarm, Whisper Decentralized Messaging Protocol, Swarm kind of decentralized file, file storage, or just data storage. Um, well, more file storage. And, and what was the idea? Uh, why was it thought necessary to develop a browser? Because, I mean, this is also such a barrier, right? If you, if you wanted people to adopt it, I mean, I know you'll be able to use it uh, through normal web browsers as well. Right, so there's uh, three alternatives that we had. Well, really four alternatives. One alternative is to have uh, a uh, either an add-on or a web page, so kind of like blockchain.info or kind of like CryptoKit, where basically, you know, it's all inside of a browser and people will just have an Ethereum client. And, you know, you could do clever tricks with iframes to kind of, uh, you know, st- still have this aspect where you could have t- decentralized applications written in HTML and JavaScript and would kind of work inside and it would sort of have like a browser window inside of a browser window. That's actually a route that we are developing. Like we are going, we we do have two people that are kind of you know de- dedicated to this idea, to the idea of having a, that kind of JavaScript clients and people who want you know just a really lazy ability to access Ethereum from inside the same browser as everything else will have that ability. Second choice is writing a, a plugin, so kind of like Flash or Java. Um, uh, we weren't really interested in the choice again. In part because you know no, nobody on our team particularly knew how plugins worked. Um, in part, in part because it's just a. I mean, it's kind of a halfway. It's kind of a halfway house solution that you know has some of the benefits of one approach, but some of the some of the and some of the costs and some of the benefits of not, and some of the costs of the other approach, and we decided that having an independent browser is a better option because it lets us do a lot more to create an environment that's specifically tailored to these kinds of applications. So like one example is adding in a permission system because, you know, with dApps, you really need that, like basically kind of built, almost built in accounts, the ability to like really control exactly what, what dApps can and can't do to, you know, whatever accounts you have on the blockchain. Um, It's the ability to know just potentially eventually add in like other mech other ways of writing dApps so you know they don't have to be in html and javascript so, like we want to support standalone applications as well now how how would you support those standalone applications on, on mobile platforms do you envision uh, fr- uh development frameworks for ios and android for, for instance um yeah we are going to have an ethereum library for ios and android i mean at the very least you could probably take our javascript code and and, and port it in already but you know it's obviously going to be slow. Eventually, we're going. The next version of Go, as it turns out, will have an, an option to. Well, we'll have basically Android compatibility, so it will be possible for us to like write in 
a mobile client. I recently, there's a, a nice tutorial as well, or sort of a, de a web demonstration on YouTube of the Ethereum browser. Uh, what was the name again of the browser? It's Mist, Mist. no? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can have a look at it. it I, I, to be honest, I, I have seen it sort of demonstrated. It does look really cool. So I, I do see the logic, especially because we are talking about uh, such a radical shift in the way applications work and they're consumed, that they're distributed, and they're paid for. So it does make sense to me to sort of develop it from the ground up, but also at the same time, it, it illustrates very well how the project of creating, I think, a new crypto application platform has become so huge, you know, and has taken on so many new dimensions. It's like, oh, we're going to have to do this from scratch as well, this from scratch as well. Yeah. So t touching on these applications, uh, I mean, recently you had a, you guys hosted a, a, a hackathon in Berlin. It was called DEF CON. Brian, you were there, I believe, right? Yeah, I was there for parts of it, yeah. Uh, so what are some of the interesting sort of projects that you saw emerge at, uh, at, at DEF CON? I guess, like, basically DEF CON was really an event for, like, everyone on all sides of the, pro uh, of the, of the projects to kind of show off what they were working on. So... Like on the one hand, you know, we had Alex Van uh, Van de Sand show off uh, Mist, or we, you know, what he was working on with Mist, what it would look like, what it would what it would be with the, you know, with the with the permission system built in, with uh, how sample DApps would look inside inside of the browser. Uh, Jeff talked about that as well. The the guys from Poland that are doing a virtual machine talked about the virtual machine. Um, Vlad and Vlad and I were doing proof of stake. Talked about proof of stake and so forth. Um, most interesting things that are probably started, well, I guess, uh, Solidity, which is uh, the contract programming language that Gav and, uh, uh, Christian Reisweiner are working on. So that's, I mean, they, they got some pretty serious plans for that. You know, they're trying to, like, make a language where contracts would be first-class objects, objects inside of contracts would be first-class objects, and, like, it, it even has like a built-in formal proof system. So it would have all these sort of features that are specifically tailored to, you know, the specific fact that this is a language where different people are writing programs and they kind of all talk to each other. And you and you really, really care about code, be, like code being absolutely correct the first time. Um, I mix the integrated development environment. We saw the initial plan for that. You mentioned something interesting there, contracts as objects. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I never really thought of it that way. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, he'd, you know, the word contract is kind of really bad terminology at this point, uh, to be honest, because originally the reason why I called them contracts in Ethereum is because when I was working on... Uh, uh, Mastercoin before that, I had been developing, it was about financial contracts and specifically it was about contracts for difference. And the whole idea of, you know, you having a pro programming language control money actually came out as the result of this, uh, of this ap approach of trying to take this, the idea behind contracts for difference and basically like generalize them and, you know, allow, basically allow people to bet on arbitrary mathematical formulas and so it just kind of the name just kind of stuck. But really, you could it's almost more accurate to think of them as being agents, like kind of you know my current style autonomous agents. Um, I some yeah something you could call them objects. I call them accounts sometimes. Actors. 
So kind of the bulk, so our listeners don't know what sort of the main, uh, the main topic of this episode uh, we had in mind and what we really want to dive into. So perhaps let's, let's get started with that. And just to give some, some brief, it, it seems like judging from reading your blog posts, the one thing you've spent the most time on you know, has been um, consensus systems, right? So talking about proof of work, proof of stake, uh, what the right uh, proof of stake implementation is. That's also one thing I came away with from DEFCON. It's just how complicated proof of stake is and how many different options there are and different possibilities. Uh, and the other thing is scalability. So we'll really dive sort of into that. And I think it will give us a, a nice window also in the future of cryptocurrencies. Um, so perhaps get started off. Can you talk a bit about why uh, this is the area where you focus on during the last year? So, you know, I'm, I've been looking at consensus systems and I've been looking at it, trying to figure out first, you know, what function they serve, what will people want them for and, you know, specific and how, under what circumstances they can become something that people actually adopt as, you know, a fabric for substantial portions of social interactions. So the uh, problem, I mean, two problems that I see with Bitcoin are, Number one, proof, number one, proof of work is expensive. So, ba- you know, with basically what Bitcoin is doing is it, as I've uh, said a couple of times, it's paying six hundred million dollars a year. That's you know, that's the cost of all of, of all of the mo- of all of the mining har- har- hardware and all the electricity, roughly six hundred million dollars per year on a five of ten multisig. Because you know, ultimately, there's maybe about like five or five or ten big mining farms and mining companies that can, that control the entire the entire network with especially with ASICs out. So you know we're paying we're paying a really huge amount. It's this incredibly inefficient protocol that basically involves miners literally competing to see who can waste the most resources the fastest. And on the other hand, it's not getting us all that much decentralization because we have this ASIC specialization problem. So with proof of work, I've been trying to at least solve the ASIC problem. So come up with a proof of work algorithm, which is CPU friendly. And in, we've been looking through a whole bunch of approaches around that. So initially we took the memory hard route, which is, you know, trying to make something that's kind of like script, but better. And we I invented this algorithm called Dagger that basically allows you to create a, uh, an algorithm which is memory hard to compute, but memory easy to verify which is important in making memory hardness, hardness scalable because, you know, if it takes a gigabyte to, to actually perform a round of an algorithm, then the problem is it also takes a gigabyte to verify it and it also takes a billion steps to verify it, which is completely non-viable, especially for us, for like, like clients. So that's the first uh, step. Uh, so tr- then from there, Sergio made his post pointing out how Dagger is basically vulnerable to shared memory attacks. And so from there... You know, we went into a bunch of different routes. At first, we went into blockchain-based proof-of-work, which is this idea of, like, running contracts on the blockchain as a proof-of-work algorithm. Then we did this random circuit approach where basically we would randomly generate programs. And the idea is that in order to, like, it could, because the, the random program generator can conceivably create any kind of program, the computer, which would be... Like, you can't really specialize for it because you're sort of specializing for everything. It turns out that the pro- like the problem is that it's turned out to be very, very hard to actually come up with a sort of way of generating random programs that rough that actually match 
the kinds of programs people would realistically run on CPUs. And so, you know, there's ASIC problems around that. So the thing that we finally settled on is this idea of uh, I.O. bound proof of work. So the idea being that the primary limiting factor is not computation, it's input and output on memory. So it's an algorithm. I mean, it actually, so the the algorithm that we took the idea from is called Hashimoto. It's uh, this thing invented by Thaddeus Drijo, which is, it, it actually does two things at once. The first thing is it's I.O. bound, but the, da- the, data that it, the, the data set that you have to fetch from in order to do the computation is actually the blockchain. So it also simultaneously forces every node, to be, every miner to be a full node. So I came up, so the, I came up with uh, a version of Hashimoto that I'm calling Dagger Hashimoto, which kind of separates out the, it actually uses two data sets. It uses the blockchain as a data set once, and then it uses a Dagger generated data set another time. And the point of that is that Hashimoto by itself is not really light client friendly to verify because a lot of clients are not going to store the entire blockchain. So it's the, but dagger sets on the other hand, they're very easy to, it's very, the whole point of a day of dagger as a data, as a data generating algorithm is that it's very easy to like generate individual nodes at the bottom of the set. So I'm sort of combining those two approaches and figuring out something which is simultaneously IO bound and has this uh, light, light client property. Um, so, um, are there any centralization concerns with every miner having to run a full node? Partially it increases centralization, but partially it reduces it, I'd say. because So the problem is that for, from a centralization standpoint, okay, you're not going to be able to mine on a smartphone. Fine. But the problem from a... Uh, or the benefit from a centralization standpoint is that because every miner is forced to be a full node, First of all, it, redu- it actually reduces the amount of speed up you can get from having an ASIC. And the reason is that, like, if you look at the way a Bitcoin ASICs work, none of them actually have Bitcoin nodes on them. That's part of why they can be they can afford to be so efficient. Like, they sort of all outsource the functionality to a centralized mining pool. So the way that this so this proof of work algorithm forces every phone every miner to actually you know maintain the Ethereum blockchain, sort of reduces the benefit of doing that. And the second thing is that one of the problem that, problems that Bitcoin's having is actually full node centralization. It's that there's the number of full nodes has actually been steadily declining for a couple of years, and it's like under 7,000 right now. And so, you know, we if we can just sort of do, do this to artificially force the number of full nodes up, then it, uh, you know, it has a beneficial effect from that standpoint. So another advantage i guess that's often been touted of uh, proof of work is that because you, you can only mine efficiently on asics there's no way to mine with botnets or stolen computers so is, is that a concern that you will be able to mine with botnets so yeah i mean it's an issue my in my opinion is that it's overrated uh there are two reasons so first reason is that if you look at the kind of hardware that ASA, that botnets tends to infect, I mean, first it's generally, you know, really old laptops running Windows XP. So, you know, 100,000 botnet computers are really worth only like 10,000 normal computers. And the second thing is that if you take over a computer and then you still need to like keep under, you know, some level of resource utilization, like you need to keep under, you know, 10 or 20%, otherwise you get noticed. So... 
really, you know, it's like 50 to 100 botnet computers are worth as much as one normal mining rig. So that's one argument. And the other issue is that if botnets actually are effective, then I think legitimate botnets are going to outcompete illegitimate ones. And what I mean by legitimate botnets basically is companies that are developing software applications will build, will build in miners as a form of monetization. So, you know, if you download some particular thing, like, you know, if, like, say, if you, if you download, I don't know, some antivirus package, then, you know, it would scan your computer for viruses, but then it would also say, you know, mine on your, on your computer, and it would carefully calibrate it to mine only when it's, uh, not interfering with, you know, your battery life or your other activities. And it, would, and it could even give you like a cut of the profits. So could we, could we also extrapolate that to hardware, like uh, embedded hardware, such as uh, smart refrigerators and smart washing machines? Embedded hardware, probably not. Well, at least not in the specific case, because, uh, well, the whole point, the whole point of CPU mining, is the reason why it's so decent, it has this potential of being so decentralized is that everyone has some quantity of computing power to them to them that's basically free right so computing power up to, up to some constant up to some value n you only have to pay for the electricity you don't have to pay for the hardware so that makes it cheap and then going beyond n you have to you know that's the point where your first computer is up to 100% and you have to pay for more electricity and more hardware so it's this really weird sort of super linear cost curve that you pretty much very rarely see in economics so and then, like, that's basically why, you know, you could actually realistically expect that home users will be able to mine and they're not going to get outcompeted by even specialized data farms. So the problem with refrigerators is that they have no reason to have spare CPU capacity by default. And so if you put miners into them, then, well, you know, not, it's not going to be, uh, like, they'll have to pay for hardware and electricity. Now, although the, now the one argument that I will grant is that for heating devices there might be a legitimate case that for heating devices, electricity, it's electricity that's free. So actually, look, this is like the one potential salvation that ASIC mining could possibly have is that, you know, maybe just maybe it makes economic sense to put to put ASICs inside of every home heater, in which case the whole thing actually will, will be decentralized again. Yeah, of course, then I mean, the issue now is going to be that you need to be able to plan ahead, right? Something like a heating device would only make sense if you know you can mine with that for five years and you have some expectation of the profit. Uh, and that's definitely not going to be there in the short or medium term, maybe in the long term. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is that it's uh, something that could happen, right? But it's uh, not, something that, not something that we can necessarily count on. So... I mean, I really don't know enough home heating economics to say exactly how, vi- how viable an ASIC as a home heater is. And I guess the immediate problem is that they're kind of a lot more, you know, is that an ASIC is way more expensive than just, you know, a box that, was, that sits there and wastes electricity. So, you, you know, it might be cheaper to just use boxes that waste electricity instead if you have heating. But, yeah, it really could go either way. So we're going to move on to um, proof of stake in a second, because that's kind of, I think, where it also gets really interesting to talk about that. But uh, before, uh, we'll just briefly do an ad about Shapeshift. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, if, if anybody out there has ever tried to buy altcoins, you know that it's probably very complicated and cumbersome. And one of the reasons uh, for that is because most uh, 
most people that want to buy altcoins have to go through exchanges. So you have to find the reputable exchange, uh, sign up, give them a bunch of personal information, send Bitcoins to that exchange, and then place an order, wait for that order to be fulfilled. That just takes a long time to do. And, uh, and it's just a hassle. So um, there's a company that uh, we've been working with for the last couple of weeks called Shapeshift. And Shapeshifts offers an alternative to that. And actually last week, uh, Alan Scott of, uh, of Cointelegraph came up with this interesting, uh, interesting analogy, uh, which I'm gonna use. And that Shapeshift is much like Google Translate for currencies, for cryptocurrencies. So actually, we're we're gonna we're gonna demo this because that's how easy it is. We can actually like demo this within uh, within the show. Uh, let me just share my screen here. There we go. All right. So uh, I've got Shapeshift running here, um, and you'll see. So on the right, on the left hand side, I've got BTC, and on the left hand side, I've got uh, Litecoins. Now, all you need to do really is just enter your Litecoin payment address and a specific amount, and hit start. And then that will generate um, an address and a QR code to which you send money to. And in just a few seconds, Shapeshift will send Litecoins to your account. So I'm going to get my Litecoin address. All right, let's see here. Oh, I don't have my Litecoin address handy. That's a shame. <laughs> because you probably should have prepared for this, right, Brian? Yes. Um, well. Well, let's let's do it next time. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it live again. Uh, but yeah. I, I used it. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, it, 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 it only takes about. Oh yeah, let's let's send some. Yeah, sure. Like if, if you can send, me, if you've got one handy, you can send me in the chat. I'll I'll uh, I'll add it in right now. But uh, no, so essentially how this works is you just send uh, the amount of bitcoins that uh, Shapeshift will uh, specify uh, to the address that it specifies. And in just a few seconds, you'll get Litecoin on your account. Okay, Vitalik just sent me a Litecoin address. Thanks, Vitalik. All right, so let's say we want to get, I don't know, one Litecoin. How much is that? Start. Okay, so here it says, within the next 10 minutes, I need to send this much Bitcoin to uh, this deposit address that I can do. Maybe I can, may I, I let Demo me Demo went this. surprisingly well last week. Too late, I sent it already. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you sent it. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now we're waiting exchange, and in just a few seconds, uh, Vitalik will have some light going in his account. <laughs> yeah. QR codes are really nice. Yeah. Well, if if you hadn't been so fast, we've gotten the light coin for for the show, but. <laughs> so now it's a waiting exchange, and there you go. So that took about twenty seconds. And we didn't have to create any accounts, give Shapeshift our email address, or wait for orders to be fulfilled. So the the idea is to allow you to buy and sell Litecoins quickly and easily, and they accept uh, they accept a whole bunch of uh, of uh, like of uh, altcoins, so Litecoin, Peercoin, Darkcoin, Dogecoin, Namecoin, Feathercoin, Blackcoin, and who knows, maybe someday Ethereum, Gems, uh, all these app coins, yeah, all these uh, app coins that are coming out. So give give uh, Shapeshift a try. Go over to shapeshift.io. It's fast and easy, and uh, we would like to thank them for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. Absolutely. So let's move on to uh, proof of stake. So. I, you know, proof of stake is one of those things I've been sort of wanting to look into it for ages. I was always like, I've always wanted to read about proof of stake and really understand how it works. And I'd somehow never gotten around to it. 
And, you know, recently I've, I've more and more started to think about it, read a bit about it. I still feel I have a, a fairly poor understanding of proof of stake. I did actually read one of your, Vitalik, uh, one of your articles, like really old article uh, that you wrote for Bitcoin Magazine uh, just the other week. <laughs> it was very, uh, very clear, very understandable. But of course, things have changed a lot. So can you briefly explain to those who don't know about proof of stake, what proof of stake is? So proof of stake, basically, I mean, it is a consensus algorithm, much like proof of work is a consensus algorithm. And the point of a consensus algorithm is to have is to have a way of updating the blockchain such uh, such that you such such that it's it's very it's very hard to to revert essentially so like you you want to avoid situations where you know you know you, you have a little blockchain it's growing blocks are being added to it and then some attacker is just is able to create a new blockchain that like goes uh, that starts off at some point you know 100 blocks back and the attacker creates 200 block creates like 200 blocks and then every, and everyone switches off to the attacker's chain so it reverts history so the point, like the point of a consensus algorithm, is to make it expensive or to restrict block creation in some fa- in, in some fashion, so uh, so that you can't, uh, uh, so, uh, so that you know, people can't just you know create blocks uh, at whatever rate they want for uh, starting from wherever starting from wherever they want, and the, and also try to like incentivize people to work on continuing to like expand one particular chain, so you know so time only like moves forward, it doesn't jump backward. Um, so proof of work does that by making each block computationally hard to produce. So, you know, every time, once a block gets released, there's this math problem where if you can come up with a block based on, based on the block that already exists, such that your block has a hash, which is less than like two to the 176 or whatever, whatever, some really low, some really low number compared to, you know, compared to the, compared to the numbers that hashes usually take. Then you, then you, then that block is valid, and so that block, that block jumps out onto the network. Everyone receives the block, and people start producing the next block from there. The idea behind proof of stake is that instead of the limiting factor being computing power, the limiting factor basically is stake. So stake being you know coins themselves. So the simple way to describe the really simple uh, sort of naive proof of stake that people were thinking about three years ago was this idea that you would have uh, every single account would have some would have a chance per second of of being the accounts that would that has the right to create a block at some particular time and that chance per second is proportional to how many coins that account has so you can think of every account as kind of being like a simulated mining rig where it's uh, where the the power of the simulating mining rig is proportional to the uh, like the 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 amount of coins in the account. So like that's basic, you know, that's basically you know the the idea behind proof of stake. It's some kind of way of limiting block creation where the base where your probability of being or the amount of influence that you have in the block creation process is proportional to how many coins you have. Now, I've got a question about how this actually works because we've talked about proof of stake in a sort of theoretical sense a lot. I mean, you have in your blog post, but in, in actuality, when you're mining with, with stake, with your coins, do all of your coins have to be in one address or can you mine with multiple addresses? How, how does that work? 
Yeah, I mean, why can't you mine with multiple addresses? I mean, any system is going to let you pretend to be multiple people. Um, yeah, basically, like, you can... If you have an account and that account has coins in it, then you can... Then there's, you know, there's some option that you'll be able to turn on in your client. And that option will basically... will look for opportunities when you have the ability to... When you have the right to create a new block. And if you have the right to create a new block, you'll end up creating a new block. So... If you have 10 coins, then let's say, so let's say the total number of coins in the system is a thousand and let's say you have 10 coins and it's a model where, and it's a model where it's done on a sort of block by block basis. Then the way you would expect it to work is that an account with 10 coins, once a block gets created, an account with 10 coins would have a 1% chance of being the account that gets to create the next block, Right. So, or it could be, you know, it could be per second as well. So you could have a 1% chance of having the right to create a block during the next interval. So then that's, so you, if you have all 10 of your coins in one account, then, you know, that's what you have. You just keep, your client keeps on waiting 1% in 1% of all the intervals, you get lucky and your client pushes out a new block onto the network. If you were to split your 10 coins up into two accounts, then each individual account would have five coins, each individual account would have a 0.5% chance, and so basically the same thing would happen. So here you have, um, I, you know, one of the advantages, or the main advantage, I guess, of mining pool, right, is that it decreases the variance of mining. And obviously here you'd have a, a huge problem with uh, small miners that, or small coin holders that because of the high variance, they also may never uh, mine a block. Yeah, in every system has a variance problem. Um, so in proof of stake, you theoretically could have stake pools. In fact, you even could have decentralized stake pools. And decentralized stake pools are interesting because, like the way I see it, is that you know I think there are decentralized stake pools are actually you know a perfectly fine and natural thing. And uh, the in fact, there is actually a market incentive for people to come up with stake pools that are more decentralized because. The way with the way at least the Swasher model of proof of stake, which is the model that I've been working working on since, uh, or that I came up with in January and I've been working on ever since. If you're if you end up, you know, doing something bad, like if you end up signing two blocks at the same height, or if you if you know if you end, or if you end up mining on the wrong chain and so forth, then you get then a proof that you acted in, in an incorrect way can actually be reincorporated into the blockchain, and then that can punish you by taking away your security deposit. So if you were to give your coins, if you were to allow an insecure stake pool the right to vote with your coins, then that insecure stake pool could theoretically end up, in, it could theoretically end up doing something bad with your coins, at which point you'll lose your deposit and so your coins will be gone. So... Your, right, so your incentive is to look for stake pools that are good. And by good, that, that means, you know, secure and secure basically means, you know, not vulnerable to one particular party, which, you know, de being decentralized is just the simplest way of doing that. So the slasher algorithm that you that you wrote uh, is a way to address what, what we call the nothing to stake problem. So perhaps could you just explain what that is and 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 also and also perhaps uh, give some of the uh, some of the the challenges that remain to be solved with uh, even with this algorithm that you've developed. Sure. So the idea behind nothing at stake is this. So let's suppose that you have the main blockchain, it's chain A, 
Then an attack, so chain A comes along, it's growing, and then an attacker starts off, the attacker makes chain B, and chain B is trying to, you know, reverse some transaction or whatever. So in mining, you would have, so you'd have four choices. Choice number one is you would mine on neither chain, so screw A, screw B, I'm just sitting there. Choice two is you just mine on A. Choice three, you just mine on B. Choice four is you mine on A and B at the same time. So just sorry, just, uh, when you're mining on A and B at the same time, you're you're putting half of your hashing power on one and half on the other. Exactly, yeah. and that's that's the thing. Exactly, when you're mining, you have to split it. You only have one unit of hashing power. You have to split it up. So if let's say you, if because chain A is ahead, the probability of chain A winning is let's say ninety percent. Then if you mine on neither chain, you get zero expected revenue. If you mine on chain A, you get zero point nine expected revenue because it's ninety percent chance of getting a block. If you mine on chain B, then you get 0.1 expected revenue. And if you mine on both chains, then it's going to be 0.5 because, you know, there's a 100% chance that either of these, that, that either of those blockchains is going to, is, or that one of those two blockchains is going to, is going to make the next block. And, but you're only mining with half power on that particular chain. So because you're splitting your mining power in half, the half option is exact is going to give you exact a return that's exactly halfway between the good option and the bad option, and so it makes sense to go with the good option. And so because of that, there is this rapid convergence property where if if one chain has an even slightly higher chance of succeeding, everyone's incentive is to mine on that chain, and so it rapidly converges to being the only chain. So proof of stake, you have a problem. The problem is that there ex- you know, mine on neither chain, expected revenue zero. Mine on chain A, expected revenue 0.9. Mine on chain B, expected revenue 0.1. But if, or rather, vote on chain A, vote on chain B. But if you vote on chains A and B at the same time, then the problem is that you're not actually split, you're not actually splitting up anything. Because you're mining on chain A with coins on chain A, and you're mining on chain B with coins on chain B. So you're actually getting both at the same time. And both chains aren't aware of the state of the other, so that is what allows you to do that. Okay. Yeah, so your expected return is 0.9 from this one and 0.1 from that one, so it's 1. And so, rationally speaking, everyone is going to vote on every chain. So, Slasher is an algorithm I uh, came up with in January. And what it, Slasher does is it says, okay, we are what we're going to say is when you mine a block, then you are not going to get your reward for another 3,000 blocks. Now, if you get caught mining on chain A and chain B at the same time, then what what happens is that anyone in the network can create a transaction, and what that transaction is is just a proof of mine of uh, a proof containing the signature on chain A and the signature on chain B at the same block number. And then they can submit that as a transaction into a block. And then that deletes your signing reward, and it also gives a third of the signing reward to whoever submitted the evidence as a bounty. So the idea there is that you're sort of explicitly punishing this chain A plus B approach, and so you're, as a result, the chain A plus B you know, approach has a return of zero. So since then, so one of the problems that Slash that Slasher 1.0 had is this is that in order, uh, so the problem is that if you're voting, if you're sort of, if you're doing this sort of double vote strategy, then chances are you're not going, to, you know, chances are you're not going to have an opportunity to mine on either chain because it's, you know, it's a relatively low probability thing. It happens rarely. So 
even if you choose the strategy that you're going to vote on A and you're going to vote on B, most of the time you never get an opportunity on both. You either get an opportunity on one or you get an opportunity on the other. So even if you adopt the double voting strategy, most of the time it's still going to look like single voting because, you know, it's probabilistic. You only see one. So the way that Slasher in January solved the problem is it also pre-selected voters. So, yep, that's exactly it, Slasher. So if you scroll down a bit, um, actually scroll a bit way down. There we go. Up, up, up. See the four points? So, um, so point, uh, number, uh, number two is that you know, or points number one and two is that you notice that the, uh, the signer for, the, the set of signers or, or the, for block number three, number n plus three thousand get picked during block n. So you really, really pre you pre-select who the voters are going to be. Yeah. So the point of that is that if a fork starts, the voters on chain A and on chain B at the same number are actually always going to be the same. So you always, you know, you can either vote on both cha chains or you can vote on no chain. So if you're double voting, then you actually are voting on both chains, and you actually will get caught. And you. Know, and so it makes sense to single vote and to stick to the blockchain that's, uh, you know, that, that has a high probability of winning. Cool. So th that seems like a, a pretty elegant solution. Are there any problems with that? So there's, there's a small problem and there's a large problem. So the small problem is that if you select voters 3,000 blocks in advance, then you have this uh, extra denial of service vulnerability and you have a bit of a collusion vulnerability because... You know, you the set of the set of voters for a block are going to be known like many hours in advance, and so if they're known many hours in advance, then you you know first of all they might have the ability to like get together and all extort the entire network and say, okay, we're not going to sign unless you give us a million dollars. And the second problem is that they become targets for a denial of service attack. Just one question: How, how would the miners collude with one another? How would they come into contact? I mean, they all have. I mean, it's going. It's public what their public keys are. Right. Okay. And especially with especially with Ethereum, because you have Whisper, you know, you use, uh, you'll be able to send a message to that public key directly, and they'll see it. Um, so the way you solve that problem is, uh, I mean, there's two approaches. One approach is this, is the tendermint strategy, which is you just say, okay, everyone is going to be a signer at every block. Um. It's convenient. Um, it actually, I mean, it actually also resolves the double voting problem because, you know, everyone votes every block. It's not probabilistic. But it has this uh, issue that, you know, you need a really, really huge number of signatures for every block and it's going to be expensive to produce, expensive to validate lots of data. So you know, uh, the other approach is with the approach that I'm calling Slasher 2.0. And with Slasher 2.0, the idea is that instead of punishing double voting, you're punishing voting on the wrong chain. So if you vote on A, then if B wins, then your vote, then, you know, even if you just voted on A, then your vote on A can be put into vote, your, can be put into B and that takes away your deposit. So that's all, and that generally solves the problem because it actually only lets you pick voters like one or two blocks in advance. Like there are some other complications, like how you have a random number generator inside, inside of proof of stake. And, uh, you gen you know, there's some approaches for solving that. There's the NXT approach, which sort of, which basically uses uses absentee voters as as a source of randomness. Um, 
Uh, we came up with an improved version of that approach based on low something called a low influence function. Uh, there's also you can also actually take the Slasher 1.0 route. There, there, there is like a built-in, uh, there is a, a built-in cryptographically secure provable ransom number generator in Slasher 1.0, and you can actually take that te that technology and compress it down to five blocks and make it work. So the smaller problems, you know, they have solutions. The bigger problem is okay. So you say that if you vote, then or if you if you produce a block, then you get your reward after some number of blocks. So, and before that, if someone comes up with proof that you cheated, then your reward gets taken away. Problem. What if, what if someone starts, what if you start a fork, or what if start, someone starts a fork that's so far back in history that everyone who voted at that particular time already got, already got their coins taken out of the deposit. So, the deposit doesn't, so the deposit doesn't exist anymore. They have their money, they have their money, and there's no way, there's no way to punish them. Then, once again, there is no incentive. There is no incentive for them not to sign on. You know, every attacker's fork. So, this is so this is called the long range attack problem. So, the issue is, what if you have a fork that starts really, really, really far back? Like it could even be as far back as a Genesis block. You could have a situation where someone goes to each and every one of the participants in the currency's Genesis sale and asks them for uh, for you know, it tells them, I'll give you $5 for your private key. So all of the participants in the Genesis sale, they're going to be fine giving up their private key because, you know, they have the ability to, even if they're still using the private key, they have the ability to just switch to a new one, right? And move all, move their coins over. And then they'll say, oh, sure, you know, it's my private key. I'm not using it anymore. Here you go. Thanks for the five bucks. So, okay, attacker pays five bucks times a few hundred, take, you know, has two thirds of the coins in the Genesis sale, and then the attacker has the ability to basically simulate an entire history, which is equivalent to, which is indistinguishable from a legitimate history. And then that uh, it could, and then that blockchain actually looks even more legit than 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 the normal one because the attacker's nodes are online 100% of the time. So that problem, like you basically you can't solve the problem crypto economically. Like I actually tried like whacking my head against solving the problem and using some clever economic tricks like transactions as proof of stake. And I tried it for two months, but I eventually figured out, you know, it's, funda it's fundamentally unresolvable. And so that's when I came up with this concept that I described in a recent blog post, which is called weak subjectivity. So the idea behind weak subjectivity is that instead of, uh, so with proof of work, it's a consensus mode that you can, you can call it objective. So what that means is that if some new node joining the network sees the current set of blocks that have been produced, that new node will be able to come to exactly the same conclusion as everyone else about what the valid block is, because they just check, you know, which blockchain has the highest total proof of work on it. So, with proof of stake, I am arguing that in order to make proof of stake work, you need a consensus model which is weakly subjective. So, in order to define weakly subjective, I guess so strongly subjective would be something like Ripple consensus, where you know there is no objective scoring system; it all depends on what each individual node's unique node list is, right? So weak subjectivity is this interesting compromise between the two, where you basically say that if you are a node and you, you have already connected to the network within some period of time in the past, so I'm thinking something like, you know, three months or, you know, it could be 12 months or whatever, then you have the ability, then you have the ability to come to the same consensus as everyone else just by seeing the data. But 
a node that is a node that has either been dormant for a really long period of time or a node that's connecting to the network for the first time, that node is going is going to have to basically get a checkpoint from someone. I don't know. I wanted to ask a question that sort of uh, touches on proof of stake from a from a broad perspective, and. So Sebastian pointed out, he sent me a, a video the other day, and, and there is that idea that, you know, proof of stake, if you explain uh, proof of stake to someone who is maybe not from the cryptocurrency space, and, and they say, well, you vote with your coins, right? It sounds like it's very much a sort of a, a rich get richer scheme, right? Where sort of money uh, controls everything. Um, and, you know, maybe one can say this is a bit flawed, right? Because who gets to buy mining hardware? But I'm curious, what is your point of view on that? Yeah, my my point of view basically is that mining that you know mining hardware is exactly that kind of game to exactly the same extent. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, to, to buy mining hardware, hardware which would allow you to mine anything reasonable, you you, you need to be rich. I mean, essentially, you need to have a large amount of resources to buy that mining hardware. So we're looking at the same problem, basically, just it's displaced. Yeah. A- another interesting. Uh, a way of looking at it, uh, and I, I'm, re- I'm really curious how this works, right? So, because you can say that with mining, even if it 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 doesn't solve that problem, one problem or one effect it has, it dilutes early adopters and it creates a sort of a coin distribution, right? So, w- what are your thoughts on on distribution and proof of stake? And that's kind of interesting because the same people. The same people that advocate proof of work are often the same people that advocate Bitcoin's finite supply model. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I I do think that a growing you know a growing supply would be opt well is more optimal. But the thing is that you know just doing like if all you're doing is you're just having like some amount like wasted work basically, and you're distributing coins to people who waste work, that's I mean, it's basically a make-work program. It's not really something. It's not really a particularly useful way of distributing money. Right, I agree with that. It seems like an extremely inefficient way of doing it. But still, so with proof of stake, it means basically, right? If you own like ten percent of the coin in the beginning, it and assuming you keep mining, then you will keep owning ten percent, right? Because even if there's a block reward or not, if the coin supply grows or not. If you get ten percent of all the block reward and transaction fees, it sort of works out the same thing. Correct. Um, yeah, I mean the only the only category of models that kind of get around that is the whole idea of well, you know, let's have the stakeholders in some you know in, or the participants in the network in some fashion decide who to distribute coins to in order to pay for ongoing development. So like BitShares, DBosses. Probably the one sort of live iter- live uh, implementation of that kind of a mechanism. So, I mean, that's an interesting set of strategies. It could be promising. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Aside from that, I mean, in general, I don't think. I mean, if people are looking for fairness and egalitarianism out of cryptocurrency, I mean, ultimately, you know, the people that need that the most are like Africa people in Africa that are on one dollar a. D- living on one dollar a day and they don't even have access to laptop to laptops or ASICs or coins. And so if we're looking at this as an egalitarian revolution, it's not going to come from the currency issuance. It's going to come from the uh, the, the fact that this is technology that massively lowers barriers to entry to participating in a whole bunch of systems. Exactly. I mean I think the one thing and you've written about this as well, it's uh, 
but let's not go in there because it's a whole other discussion. But if you could verify that, you know, you are someone is a unique person, then of course you could have a, a cryptocurrency that just gets issued, like let's say in a monthly way to all unique people. And, and then that could be revolutionary in that way. Exactly. So I, I know, you know, your view is, and the view of many people, that uh, proof of stake, at least assuming all these things get figured out and it gets tested and it really works, that it is in the long run superior to proof of work. Uh, so do you think, first of all, is it technically possible uh, that Bitcoin would switch to proof of stake? And do you think that, do you see any plausible scenario that there could actually be a consensus to that, that, uh, you know, a majority of hashing power? Okay, so technically speaking, it's entirely possible. So, you know, it's actually a bit of a misconception that it's the majority of the hashing power that decides who controls the protocol. Because ultimately, you know, if if we all decide that... you know, SHA-256 is a bad mining algorithm and we should instead use SHA-3. And Gavin Andreessen pushes out, a, pushes out a version of the Bitcoin clients, Bitcoin 0.10. And Bitcoin 0.10 says that a block is that blocks up to block number 400,000 are valid if they use SHA-256. And above to 400,000, they have to use SHA-3. And if everyone downloads that client, then once block 400,000 hits... Even if there's only like four people mining SHA-3 and there is this entire industry of ASIC hardware mining SHA-256, you know, the fact is that entire industry is going to be producing invalid blocks. And the four people that are running SHA-3 are going to be, well, producing valid blocks. And so the four people that are running SHA-3 are going to win. So it really is all about the the users and, and, not, and, and not the miners. So the mining industry basically has very little say in the mining algorithms or whether or not we i mean we go to proof of stake or any other proof system exactly i mean they they wouldn't be very happy about it i'm sure yeah miners are gonna yell and scream (laughs) but but i mean that would that 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 could potentially have some sort of an impact on a broader impact not 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 specifically uh with relation to their business model but what type of impact would that have what type of impacts would what have on whom well, I mean, the mining miners getting getting getting, getting shafted. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. There'd be a lot, definitely a lot, a lot of angry people. Um, it's yeah, hard to hard to imagine you know, what exa- what exactly the uh, anger would materialize into just uh, because you know it, 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 it's like they just their entire set of ASICs, their entire six hundred million dollar industry just you know instantly becomes valueless. So that's very interesting, though, uh, your point. I wasn't, uh, of course, it makes total sense if you think about it, but uh, I just hadn't thought, uh, hadn't made that realization that actually if the users are sort of in a consensus, you know, they can just switch over without having the consensus of the the mining mining industry. Do you you think that's, uh, what percentage do you attribute to that? What likelihood? That's the thing. Technically, it's entirely possible. Politically, it's a bit hard. Um, several reasons. Number one, I think that Bitcoin is, uh, right now, it's to a large extent committed to being this, you know, slow and steady coin that doesn't really, you know, it's, whose protocol doesn't particularly change all that often. 
And now if Bitcoin wants to have a niche as being a sort of like digital gold 2.0, then that's actually exactly the correct strategy to take. You don't want to rock the boat. You want to be exactly the same thing and you want to be stable. And, you know, the fact is that as much as much as I think it's a horrible environmental tragedy that we're wasting $600 million a year on, on useless computations, gold mining is even worse because it's people be, uh, wasting resources in order to acquire gold. And on, on top of that, you have negative environmental externalities. So, you know, I think... It, so if Bitcoin takes the you know, takes the, the route of specializing in order to sort of replace gold, which I think it should, then it probably makes sense for it to just be as conservative as, po- to be as, as conservative as possible. So, I mean, just being conservative is probably, is just, is one aspect. The other aspect is that the Bitcoin community is, uh, is, seems to be to a very large degree dedicated to the concept of proof of work and to, especially to the, I think a lot of them especially feel kind of uncomfortable about the weak subjectivity idea because like I've actually debated this on forums so many times where I you know I argue that like this there's this problem that a new node connecting to the connecting to the network and if a node's been dormant by more than one year it has to ask some other node for a checkpoint and I mean it's not going to be a random node you know like realistically, it'll be asking you'll be asking a friend, you'll be looking up a block hash on blockchain.info, or you'll just get it from the software developer. And a lot of people either see this as some kind of you know centralization, which I really don't believe it is, because you know anyone can produce checkpoints. And other people also see this as being some kind of you know quote subjectivity or even trust, which is this you know incredible really evil, uh, really Never evil thing this. that we're exactly it's this really worst evil thing that we're supposed to have space. at all costs. Yes, <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's gonna uh, it'll be a really 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 long road to trying to convince the Bitcoin community that we subjectivity yeah. is fine. Uh, probably an even longer road than you know, basically just replacing it with something, replacing it outright with something based on proof of stake. Yeah, I mean, I think one uh, one issue is also, you know, the default is to do nothing, right? So you'll just keep on in the same. And then the question is, when are you actually going to get to the point where maybe a majority says, okay, we need to do something? It's probably at the point where something really bad happened. There are a lot of alternatives already that are working. And the, the danger then is just it's going to be too late. Right? Yeah, like you know what I guess the biggest dangers are. Well, number one, what if it, you know? Well, okay, the thing that will convince Bitcoin to change its consensus algorithm. Now, it's not going to be you know these sort of moralistic arguments about how they're wasting six hundred million dollars. I mean, that's like it's a problem, but it's one. It's a sort of you know slow slow boiling type of problem. It, it's not really critical at any point. The kind of problem that, that you know that would convince them is if there is a fifty-one percent attack. So you know, there are two possibilities. One possibility is that you know a a comp- mining company actually manages to get over fifty percent. Entirely possible. Like I think for Litecoin, at some point there actually was one company that had fifty percent. They might still have that now. Um, another possibility is you know there are backdoor tricks to attacking proof of work, like. You know, you theoretically, it's, it would take $70 million to, to like do a double spend attack on Bitcoin just by actually building the ASICs directly. But if your attack vector was to just hack into mining pools, was to hack into ASIC data farms, then I could easily expect you. And 
combination of hacking, you know, maybe maybe even a, co- a combination of hiring a, a, a couple of age, agents with masks to walk into the data to walk into the data centers, you know. It could you could, could easily do it on like a you know, 100 or 200,000 dollar budget. So and the reason why that's the case is because like the the fundamental like actually Vlad Zamfir, one of our researchers, pointed this out in our proof of stake panel a couple of weeks ago, is that the reason why proof of stake is superior to proof of work is because with proof of work, the disincentive to be against being malicious is capped. It has to be equal to the reward, right? If you mine on the wrong chain, then you get nothing, and that's the, and that's the worst that can happen to you. With proof of stake, you can have security deposits, and so the penalty for doing something bad can be much much higher than the reward, and so. The reason, so the reason why I expect a lot of Bitcoin mining farms to be insecure is because they have no incentive to be secure. You know, if they get hacked and if some attacker takes them over three hours, what would you do? They lost three hours of mining power. Yeah. So if we switch to a proof of stake model where we have very high security deposits, then everyone has a really, really high incentive to really, really care about the security of their funds. And so this sort of backdoor strategy doesn't exist. And of course, one, one big issue too is that with mining, uh, you know, these people care about the value of this hardware, right? It, you don't have this, like, I own 1% of the mining power. And, you know, that sort of correlates to me having 1% stake in the currency. You know, it's not like that, right? Um, well, it depends. Actually, the, the, actually, that is uh, the, that point you raised actually is the one argument in favor of ASIC mining instead of CPU mining, which is that... And a Bitcoin, if they have a Bitcoin ASIC, then that Bitcoin ASIC is useful for nothing else. And so what they actually, you know, the asset that they're actually holding is actually, you know, basically a leveraged bet on the Bitcoin price. Right. But the problem is, ten. what is 10% of that worth, right? 10% of the mining power. It's worth only a fraction of the total value of the uh, market capitalization, whereas with proof of stake, potentially 10% is actually worth 10%, right? So... Yeah, like that's I, I, yeah, that's kind of you know, it, it's kind of another way of looking at this idea that the disincentive is but it, it can be much higher than the reward, and so the amount at stake is much higher than the amount being rewarded. So, if you're interested in these topics, uh, one good place to to read up on it is on the Ethereum blog. So, all all the articles that uh, Vitalik mentioned, uh, the weak subjectivity article and the slasher, um, the article explaining the slasher algorithm is all, is also there. I would say set aside a good hour and a half to read these because you have to read them multiple times. They're very complex. I mean, I, I have to say I, I read them uh, at least two or three times before I could even grasp about 50% of what you were saying. So um, so moving on. So Bitcoin has been, uh, there's been some criticism with the of Bitcoin in terms of scalability. There are some scalability issues, um, particularly the number of transactions per second. Uh, can you address those? Yeah. So with scalability, I see two. I see two problems simultaneously. So the first problem is the number of transactions. So, you know, right now it's at like two, one or two transactions a second, and it's already the, the blockchain's already many gigabytes. If it goes up to like ten thousand transactions a second, then the blockchain is going to be many terabytes, and the number of full nodes is going to fall down pretty drastically. So. That's uh, one one issue. Um, the you know that basically the larger the, the more people participating in the network, the more centralized it gets. And in the limit, what you have is a system that's basically like 
the limiting case of Bitcoin right now is basically PayPal. Because if the, the whole thing scales up to the point where you have 10,000 transactions a second and you're down to one node processing everything, then, you know, that one node basically is PayPal. So that's one issue. Uh, the second issue, which I think is very related, is transaction costs. You know, right now, a Bitcoin transaction costs five cents, which is fine right now because PayPal's fees are even stupider. But, you know, yeah, you know, if it, you, it should not cost you five cents. You know, the Internet of money should not cost five cents a transaction. It's, it's kind of absurd. And you know, the reason why it costs, like, for micro, you know, it completely removes all the micropayment use cases. It removes most of the non-financial use cases. And eventually, I, you know, my, my worst fear with this space is that Bitcoin is just going to get outcompeted by a centralized alternative that's managed by Google. So, you know, once Google, once, you know, the regulators get their act together and, you know, they work with Google on, on figuring out some kind of, uh, digital currency which you know which you know has all the properties that that people that normal people would like about bitcoin then google will create a a centralized currency and that centralized currency will be free to send and you know no more no there's like basically no more points for bitcoin at that you know except as digital gold from that point on so the fundamental reason why both of those issues exist is this problem that you know, in Bitcoin every node has to process every transaction. So, you know, every it's because you know, that's how the consensus database works. Is that you know everyone has to agree on what the blocks are, and each block has to contain all of the transactions. So, the point the so there are um, no one approach to solving that problem is you say okay instead of having one currency you have a hundred cryptocurrencies and each cryptocurrency handles one percent of the funds and if you want to transfer funds between them then you just do a couple decentralized exchanges so that's a solution but the problem is that each individual chain is a hundred times less secure right so you have this sort of you know Pareto frontier between on the one hand security and then on the other hand scalability where if you have um, a lot of security, then you don't have scalability. If you have a lot of scalability, you don't have a lot of security. It's sort of a linear relationship. And so in that in that language, the way that you fundamentally phrase the scalability problem is you say, the fundamental scalability problem is the problem of figuring out how to have more, how to have a larger economic weight of nodes explicitly protecting a or implicitly protecting a blockchain than the number of nodes that are explicitly protecting it. So by explicitly protecting it, I basically mean, you know, the number of nodes that are actually watching the blocks on that particular chain and are actually verifying the transactions. And by implicitly, I mean the actual security level. So, like, in all the architectures right now, explicit equals implicit, and so you have this linear trade-off. So, but, you know, there are architectures that solve the problem. Like, I know if you look at the scalability posts that I made, like the, especially you know, the one on hypercubes and the one on multi-chain, and the idea there is to come up with these sort of tricks where you would basically have a system where by, def- by default, only a small number of nodes would actually be protect- would actually be look- verifying each block. And those nodes could even be randomly selected, right? So if you randomly select like 200 nodes out of a pool of 10,000, then you have this situation where, okay, each, each block is only secured explicitly by 200 nodes, but implicitly... 
in order for an attacker to take it over, the attacker would have to actually like control, you know, at least at least four hundred node, four thousand nodes in the entire network, in order to have a, a statistical chance of being the majority in any one in any one of these, you know, two hundred node juries. And so, you know, the ex- the explicit number of nodes that are processing every block is two hundred, but the implicit level of security is somewhere around four thousand nodes. So that's one approach. That's something that I, that I call jury selection. Then the other category of approaches is to say, okay, by default, 200 nodes will look at this block, but if we notice a substantial level of disagreement, then we're going to do another. Then we're going to not count that round of consensus, and we're going to do another round on the same block using all 10,000 nodes. So by default, only a small jury. If there's if there's a problem, then it expands to the entire to the entire set. And so that way, once again, 200 nodes explicitly, but ultimately 10,000 nodes implicitly, and they're acting as a sort of deterrent, right? So, you know, because this deterrent of this sort of second round exists, attackers are not even going to try. And so the 10,000 nodes never actually all have to become active. So, the, so you know, the, it, you know, it's once again, it's a sort of... It's a sort of reserve capacity mechanism. So explicit explicit uh, number of amount quantity of attention is two hundred, and the implicit security is ten thousand. So, yeah. So that, yeah. So like that's basically a summary of scalability theory. And uh, you know, I could obviously go into you know the complexities of hypercube and multi-chain. Not sure if we have time for that. Maybe for another episode. <laughs> I don't think we have time. We'll already be running uh, very late. But I, I like we. I think it's a, a fascinating conversation we're having. So let's totally do that. Uh, and I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think there's any way around this, right? There's just no way Bitcoin would go. It, it just can't go like that, right? You can't have nodes processing all the transactions and scaling this to any to any size. It just won't work, right? So we will obviously have to find a different way, and uh, it's surprisingly tricky, right? Like, uh, I'm I'm curious. What what are your thoughts on projects like Factum that try to address this issue? I mean, Factum is uh, it seems to be more going into the proof of existence category, and proof of existence is a much easier problem than. Uh, that actually just be you know being a scalable cryptocurrency or being a scalable decentralized application platform, because like it's a like the problem is that with factum like applications, the primary thing that they care about is just proving that things got into the blockchain. Whereas here, you're trying to oh, number one prove that things got into the blockchain. Number two, prove that things didn't get into the blockchain, and you know that's a bit harder. So. Um, just before we move on, uh, we want to our, thank our second sponsor and talk briefly about our second sponsor, uh, Gems. So you may have heard of, about Gems on our earlier podcast episode with Daniel Pillard. So Gems is a, it's a social messaging app. It's a bit like WhatsApp, but uh, you know I, I like to call it social messaging on cryptocurrency steroids. So there's a the cool thing, really, is that if you think of WhatsApp, right, they got to like 400 million users, some crazy number. And there was no, the only incentive people had to use this was just that it was free and it was pretty good. But what Gems is doing is that they're sort of embedding a cryptocurrency in that so that you can pay a reward. Each time you, for example, uh, invite a new user, you can get a reward. Uh, And it creates really strong incentives that way. And you can have a similar sort of deflationary model where, you know, the earliest adopters have more incentives and then hopefully over time uh, they'll have so much momentum that uh, the monetary incentive can decrease. 
So I, I really love this, and I think it gives it a, a great shot at actually being successful there, because it, it ha has this powerful way of, of getting incentives right. Um, what else can we say about that? So, of course, it also, another thing they're trying to do is sort of solve the, the adoption problem, because Shems will be a social messaging app, but it will be a Bitcoin wallet at the same time. So, uh, you know, their view, and, and I think it's a, it's a very valid view, is that a Bitcoin wallet on its own, it, it's hard to get people to use it. It's hard to spread. But if you make it a social messaging app at the same time and people get started off straight away using, first of all, uh, cryptocurrency gems and being able to spend Bitcoin from the same thing, well, that has a real shot at achieving uh, a wide adoption. And if you think of, let's say, WhatsApp again, 400 million users, if you think of the biggest Bitcoin wallet, what's that like? Two million users or one million users with Coinbase and blockchain info, uh, you don't have to get that far to get very far, right? You don't have to get that far to really spread Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So um, those are some of the things I love about that. And so yeah, so we really really love it when we add them on. We thought this is a great project, a lot of potential. And what they are doing is they're doing something similar to what you guys have done at Ethereum is that they're doing a crowd sale. And uh, with the money they raise, they're further developing the application. And um, you can uh, get some gems that way. Uh, and it's been going on for a while, but it's still going on for, I think, uh, about 10 more days, I think, until the end of the year. It's uh, until January 5th, actually. January 5th. Okay, so another two weeks. And uh, you can participate on Coinify. So if you go to Coinify, uh, you will see the project there. And you can also check out the app at getgems.org. And on Coinify, you can you know participate in the crowd tip and uh, purchase some gems. I'm really looking forward to gems. I can't wait for it to come out on Android. Yeah, I, I really want to try it out. I, yeah. I have high expectations. Well, you'll get it first because you use an iPhone, unfortunately. Yeah. Me. So actually, very much tied to that, uh, a user sent us a question, and maybe we can just do that here because it's so relevant. A user sent us a question before. Now let me pull this up. Um, so that was a guy named Jason Redden or Reden. I don't know how you pronounce the last name. So. Do you think uh, AppCoin tokenization model of healing software endeavors should be the default for most, if not all, technology startups as a way to eliminate the need for uh, public stock offerings? I guess one could also say uh, as a way to eliminate venture capital and that kind of funding. I don't think there is a single silver bullet that's going to solve all monetization problems. You know, I think it's a matter of building tool, a matter of coming up with tools and having as large a toolbox as possible, so that people can monetize as 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 much as possible, or like monetize as many categories of good things as possible. So, you know, in the two thousands, like we came we came up with this idea of hey, you know, we can monetize free content with advertising, and that was really great. It generated a huge amount of free content. And it created this internet where so much stuff is free that you have, you know, you have a library that literally contains more information than existed in the 1970s. And, you know, that was available to even like billionaires in the 1970s. And yet even homeless people can enjoy it with just a $200 laptop. So now I, we have this idea that, you know, with, uh, with token sales, there is a way of monetizing things that are decentralized, right? So the problem with proprietary software and the problem with advertising is that, you know, you would have to, in order to monetize it, you basically have to control the platform to a very large degree. And, 
you could argue to a very large extent that's why centralized solutions have succeeded and that's why proprietary and that anti-centralized solutions have fizzled because there's just not enough incentive to build one. Now with token sales, there is for the first time and plenty of intrinsic incentive to build decentralized systems. And what's even better is that you know unlike what some other people advocate that you know decentralized application builders should somehow monetize by you know quote selling services with the the uh, you, with token sales what you actually have is you have this alignment of incentives where there are, you know the success is um, or the uh, you know the 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 ability of uh, of the uh, of of the people building the whole thing, uh, uh, build, building the, the the platform to uh, to, uh, to to continue to be successful is de- is dependent on you know the, the token actually being being useful and having value. If they build if they build yeah if they build a bad platform, then you know the crypto fuel isn't really useful for much, and it's worthless. Right. No. Totally. And and the other cool thing is that you can sort of give on that incentive to the users themselves, right? So it's not just the founding team, but you can sort of give it to everyone. And and I think that's really cool. But I, of course, I agree, right? It's it's a new alternative. It's an interesting alternative, as I think Ethereum is shown better than anyone. Uh, but yeah, it won't be like the only thing. But yeah, definitely. So so uh, let's talk a bit. So we we're definitely running late. But uh, we definitely want to kind of touch on some more topics because they are uh, extremely important, extremely interesting. And they sort of, uh, I think we arrived at a point now in our discussion where also the things we talked about before sort of led us to. And that's going to what is the cryptocurrency ecosystem going to look like in the future? Uh, And I've been thinking a lot about that. And I know you've been thinking a lot about that too. And you've written some um, blog posts on that. And I think one of the central issues in determining that is it's going to be network effects. Um, but uh, let's start with that question. Do you think there will be a, a purely digital uh, store value? Uh, you, you mentioned gold 2.0. Do you think that thing will exist? Do I, th- well, it depends what you mean by do I think gold 2.0 will exist? Like, I mean, think, you know, they exist already. It's a matter of will it get widely, widely adopted? Right, right. Well, okay, let's put it like that. Do you think we will have uh, at one point a purely digital uh, currency or a token or whatever we call it that will have the sort of mass adoption and also the stability and maybe those things don't go uh, hand in hand, that the stability and value that you'd actually be able to price things in that. So let's say I I would do a, a life insurance contract and price it in, uh, you know, a purely digital uh, currency. If that currency succeeds, unfortunately, that currency is not going to be Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is, you know, it has a fixed supply. And so it's inevitably going to forever be just too volatile to be a useful unit of account. You know, it's unfortunate fact. Like, you know, the fact is that gold, gold doesn't even have a perfectly fixed supply. Like the supply actually somewhat adjusts because you can produce more of it if the, if the price goes up. But... Even still, it's been going up and down by a factor of five every decade. That's not a stable unit of account, right? Like fiat currencies, they, they, you know, people talk about how also unsta- how also bad and unstable they are, but reality is that you know, each pair of fiat currencies, on average, I've actually looked at a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch, like I've looked at a whole bunch of currency pairs. On average, 
the the price of one random fiat currency and another, at least you know in the developed world, only goes up and down by a factor of one point six within any particular decade time span. So, if a crypto coin is to become a unit of account and people start pricing things in it, it would have to be artificially stabilized in some fashion. So, by artificially stabilized, I don't mean you know I don't mean centralization. I don't mean oh, controlled by Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen or or the ECB or whatever. I mean, like, I actually wrote a blog post on this. And, like, and, like Robert Sams, actually before me, he made the point in his paper on senior shares that, you know, just, sure, there are lots of things to be critical about in centralized monetary policies that we see in the real world but we but we shouldn't be critical but we shouldn't extend our criticisms to the concept of monetary policy as a whole the concept of monetary policy by itself is completely legitimate right it just means that a monetary policy is an algorithm that determines what the supply of a currency is going to be so with bitcoin though this it's a completely inflexible supply it's predetermined but if you could come up with a monetary policy that is decent that is decentralized and at the same time adjusts so it's you know at least partially aware of what its own price is, then you actually could get pretty far, right? You could get, uh, if you have even a reasonable estimate, you know, from things like mining difficulty, from things like transaction fees, from even things like a built-in file storage market, if you had a reasonable estimate of what the value of a coin is from inside the coin, then you could issue more units of the coin or issue fewer units of the coin, you could stabilize the price. It is, yeah, I agree. And like, so there's two general categories of approaches to that. One approach is to like try and create these kind of estimators that would try to like lead to price stabilization. Another approach is the shelling coin strategy, which is where you use a decentralized oracle to figure out exactly what the price of a coin is relative to you know, it could be U.S. dollars, could be euros, could be special drawing rights, could be the consumer price index, whatever. And you then just have a currency which is, which, you know, issues more, which issues more units if the price goes above one and takes units away if the price goes below one in terms of that index. So, so one problem with those kinds of designs is that, you know, in order for it to be stable going up and stable going down, you have to have a system where you, if the price goes down, you have to be able to take units away, right? Because if the supply can go up, but it can't go down, then as soon as it starts crashing, it's just going to crash more and more and more, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, well, it's not going to be that bad, but, you know, like, actually, taking away upward volatility does take away downward, downward, volatility, to a, downward volatility to a partial extent. But if you want to have perfect stability, you need to be able to introduce units and take units away. So this is where this Robert Sam's is sort of two currency model where you have coins and, and shares and uh, or, you know, as I call them, stable coins and volatile coins. And the idea is that if the, if the price of a stable coin goes above one, then the system sort of issues new stable coins and it auctions them off in exchange for vol coins. So the, the supply of stable coins goes up and the supply of vol coins goes down. And if the, if the price of a stable coin jumps below one, then stable coins get absorbed. And the way they get absorbed is they have an auction and new, new vol coins get issued. We're actually going to have Robert Sams on, on uh, January 5th, I think, like the first week of January to talk about just that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so it's, it's a real brilliant idea because basically instead of having one coin which is volatile, 
you're sort of split the volatility in half when you have one coin which is stable, and then the other coin sort of absorbs all the volatility and becomes extra volatile. And you know, whoever wants to speculate can speculate, and whoever and whoever wants to just, you know, live their peaceful lives and have a, de- a decent unit of account and preserve their value can do that can do that as well so you know it's, it's like that kind of, it's actually the model i'm probably even the most interested in at this point so we are we're sort of coming up at the end but i very briefly want to cover side chains can you give your view on on the side chains project so sidechains basically is a way of using the using a currency from another blockchain inside of your blockchain. So you could have chain A and chain B, and the way it works is that there's a way of locking up a coin in chain A in order to unlock a coin in chain B, and then locking up a coin in chain B in order to unlock a coin in chain A. So you could sort of freely convert them back and forth. So that project, it has... It, it has a, a, a lot of potential because, you know, first for, for networks that are either, you know, too weak to, to try to bootstrap their own currency and you know, it, it allows them to sort of use other other blockchains currencies as, as an alternative. Um, you know, do I think that sidechains will usher in the rise of Bitcoin as being the one true currency of just about everything or even at least everything in crypto? Probably not. Um, actually, the, the one... The one big piece of evidence I have for that is that if you look, so right now there's actually been one, exactly one project which was announced, which in, which intends to be a Bitcoin a Bitcoin side chain uh, that's that's not run by Blockstream, and that project is Truthcoin, which is a decentralized prediction market. And the thing that you did is actually this uh, in, this incredibly incredibly clever thing of sort of playing both sides at the same time, where they say. Oh yeah, Truthcoin is going to be a Bitcoin sidechain. So, guess what it is in reality? They have two currencies. One of them is a Bitcoin sidechain, and the other one they're going to be crowd selling. So, you know, it's. Uh, I think like just the economics al- alone. I think the the this you know the attraction of token sales is uh, is just too good for people to for people to prefer this wants to take the sidechain route on mass is one reason. Another thing is, you know, there are this, you know, people are going to want to experiment with these alternative economic models. Like, I could easily see, you know, in, in one or two years down the line, sta- the stable, stable coin, Volcoin model completely displacing the single currency model. It could very easily happen. So, uh, tied to the sidechain thing, so it, it seems if you look at the, the sidechains team, uh, they're incredibly smart people. We've had some of them on the podcast before as well. Uh, incredibly experienced in the cryptocurrency space. Um, and yet, you know, I, I also have my doubts uh, similar to yours. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Do you, um, do you think that their economic interests, because they tend to be very much early adopters, uh, to what extent do you think that that's influencing what they are doing? Yeah. I mean, they're influenced by an ideology that I've called, that I've, uh, started to call Bitcoin maximalism, this idea that Bitcoin should be the one and only currency to rule them all and there should be absolutely nothing else. And it's a viewpoint that many people in Bitcoin seem to have. Um, I guess in a part, in a part, to a partial extent, a lot of people for somehow you know, see it as unfair that 
a situation where crypt where cryptocurrency wins and yet Bitcoin do- and yet Bitcoin doesn't, or or at least you know, bit or Bitcoin has to, or you know the number that the number of cryptocurrencies will have will have to will have to increase. There's some portion there's some portion of deflation of de- of deflationism among them. There's uh, I mean it's probably a combination yeah, of yeah. Fac- factors for each one. Uh, yeah, you really can't pit it down on one particular thing. I think that answers the question. So I'd like to, so we're about to wrap up here. Uh, it's been a long conversation. We've talked about a lot of things. I mean, we'll have to come, have you back on the show at some point because we've got so many listener questions here in the in the chat room on, on YouTube. Uh, there's about 50 people in the Hangout right now. So we'll have to have you back on again so we can address those questions. But before you wrap up, uh, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, and you know, when thinking of you and the things that you're that you're doing in the in the in the Bitcoin ecosystem and, and everything that you've achieved with Ethereum, you know, you've you've had a very interesting journey. Uh, you went from being a college dropout to now perhaps being one of the most well-known people in the cryptocurrency space. In my opinion, um, you're definitely one of those people who are who is addressing uh, the issues at hand and asking the right questions and, and trying to think of those philosophical things that will you know bring us into the future um you know what how, how have you been living this uh this past year um i've basically spent in a large chunk of my life on airplanes it's uh i've been to you know i think this year this year of something like 11 countries and two or three three times as many as that in cities like basically like visiting all of, like Visiting all of the different different Bitcoin communities and crypto communities and and people who are in, and conferences and people and people who are involved in in Ethereum and uh, I guess to a large extent just uh, to a large extent just to help myself learn and to and to see you know exactly what uh, what everyone in the world is up to. So it's interesting that you've still managed though, because if if we look at your writing, like your blog posts, I I mean I've been a big fan of your writing. Uh, Back to the day when you were writing Bitcoin Magazine, I think, uh, my personal view, I think you are you are the best writer in the Bitcoin space. Like you're the best person uh, at explaining uh, complex topics in a way that uh, that are accessible to, you know, let's say, put it semi-technical uh, audience. Uh, so I, I'm curious, how do you manage to to find the time and the attention to write these uh, monster long blog posts? I mean, when you got eight hours on a plane, what else do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta agree. Planes are probably the place where I'm the most productive. So, yeah. I, <laughs> or trains for that. Yeah, but I mean, you just you just uh, got back to Toronto from yeah. basically just touring around the world. Uh, how has that been? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I saw a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different places, different places, different conferences. It's uh, it's yeah, was that in Israel, UK, Germany, Switzerland, South Korea just recently. Um, it's interesting to see the kind of different emphasis that all the different groups have, um, like different different cryptocurrency cultures, different things that people are interested in. Israel's probably been, it was the most technically advanced. Uh, like people, you know, people there are interested in proof of stake and, and uh, zero knowledge proofs and so forth. Um, you know, Germany has its own emphasis. London has a lot of finance. South Korea is still pretty new, but you know, it's exciting to see what all. Come- uh, come out of it. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, it's you know, this is this is a global movement that we're part of. So yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, you're definitely at the forefront of that movement in terms of uh, in terms of thought. Uh, I, I I really also appreciate your blog posts and everything that that you've been putting out online. And um, but you're you're very young. I mean, you're, you're what 20, 21 years old. Twenty for another month. Twenty for another month. <laughs> where do you, I mean, you've already it seems like you've already accomplished so much. Uh, where do you see your role evolving in the future? Probably going more into into research. Um, like if I've already started started uh, getting really heavily into scalability and consensus, and I know it's I've gotten to the to the point where I'm starting to like, understand a lot of the a lot of the issues better. Um, eventually, maybe write a book about some of this stuff. Um, it's yeah, in, yeah. Like I, you know, I'd like to see. Uh, Crypto economics turn into you know a proper mature sort of academic discipline, roughly the same way as standard crypto standard cryptocurrency is today. Yeah, I agree. I think that's something that's sorely needed for the future, and it's so fundamental, right? I mean, even with Bitcoin, we've often talked about some of the uh, some of the economic intricacies. Like I remember we talked about it with Jonathan Lennon with, with Mike Kern very long time ago. We talked. About um, the sort of public goods problem of transaction fees and all that, and it, there's just so little research on that, right? And it's so fundamental to getting this right. Exactly. Yeah, I and mean, it's uh, yeah. I think we definitely need a lot of research. We need to uh, like also, you know, open our open our minds a bit more. Like there is there is a lot of <laughs> there is this big research community that's still dedicated to figuring out these really really tiny intricacies of of how Bitcoin is going to work forty years from now. And I think it's we figure that we really need to focus on our probably the more big picture, big picture fundamentals. Like, you know, how do how how can a pro, how can a protocol pay for its ongoing development? Um, how would what would decentralized governance look like? What are you know what are some of the challenge, challenges in, in reputation systems? You know, sort of all of these problems that everyone thinks about that are on some level the basics you know, that haven't been solved yet. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks so much, Vitalik, for joining us today. That was super interesting, and we would love to have you back on, I don't know, maybe six months in the future or something, eight months. Yeah, sure. Uh, and hear what's been going on then. And uh, also, thanks so much for uh, our listeners. Now, there were some questions. Let's, we got to one of them. Um, uh, I don't know if there's another one we should cover. I, I think we... I think we will try to address those perhaps in a, in a, in a different context as, we, as we, we are running very late. But um, yeah, well, thanks so much, Vitalik. Uh, and uh, thanks to all our listeners for listening. Now, we will be back uh, a week from now. We will have sort of a year-end episode. We we're not 100% sure about the format and the content yet. But, uh, you know, it'll be the same time uh, and the same place. We'll definitely have to get some, some whiskey or something, Brian. Whiskey yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have whiskey. For it. uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be a year-end episode. It's going to be a year since we since we first started this like do you, do you realize that we've been doing this for a year already it just seems amazing yeah, i know it's a it's a long time yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've, we've done we've done a lot of these so um yeah thanks so much if you want to yeah so follow us on twitter at epicenter btc we'll let you know about that you can also um uh, sign up for a newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter and uh, yeah leave us an iTunes review we would appreciate that and it helps uh, new people uh, find the show although of course uh, as as cryptocurrency fans you all know itunes is a, a horribly trusted place uh, but people do trust it so 
well, what can you do? <laughs> Release okay, some of the DHT already. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see you next week. And happy holidays. Thank you.